Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of the Wiser Podcast, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community. Dr. Caprice Greenberg is a renowned surgeon scientist and a true visionary in the world of health services research. In this episode, we make reference to two powerful talks of hers that made waves in the world of surgery. The first talk, called Sticky Floors and Glass Ceilings, was her 2017 Association for Academic Surgery presidential address. Her 2018 follow-up talk, which she gave at the Michigan Medicine Department of Surgery, is called Stop Fixing Women. Both of these talks are available for viewing on YouTube. We cannot recommend them enough, and they provide important context for the interview you're about to listen to. This episode is edited and produced by Alex Speak. Welcome back to another episode of Wiser. I'm Jessica Liu, a PGY4 general surgery resident, and I'm here with Alex Speak, an M4 at Emory University School of Medicine. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Caprice Greenberg, the new chair of the Department of Surgery at Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. Dr. Greenberg earned her medical degree from the University of Chicago and a Master's of Public Health from Harvard. She completed a general surgery residency at Brigham and Women's Hospital and completed a surgical oncology fellowship at the Dana-Farber Mass General Brigham Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Greenberg. It's so great to have you. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Let's kind of dive in if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your life, how you became a surgeon. Sure. So you hit some of the highlights. Before medical school, I actually am originally from Chicago, went to undergrad there as well. You know, interestingly, I think I wanted to be a surgeon early on. I think I wanted to be a neurosurgeon when I was younger. I'm not quite sure why. And when I went to college, I was really fortunate the University of Chicago had a scholarship just for the children of police and firemen in the city of Chicago. And so I was able to go there with a scholarship. And one of the things that I did was I worked to help support books and things like that. So I started working in uh, neuroscience labs and really thought that was where I was going. And then as a third year realized that, you know, general surgery really spoke to me and kind of was where I belonged. Then I was fortunate enough to match at the Brigham and went and spent the next 13 years in Boston. That's where I met my husband, who's also a surgeon, Jake Greenberg. He's a minimally invasive surgeon and up until recently was the program director at Wisconsin. He's now going to be an assistant dean for procedural assessment at MCG starting this summer, like me. So two surgeon households. Tell us a little bit about how that works. We like to say that it's a delicate house of cards. I'm super fortunate because Jake is really, truly the embodiment of he for she. We really do have a partnership and everything is really pretty equal. And we're very, very different. Anybody who knows us will attest to the fact that we're polar opposites. And in some ways that works to our advantage because we equally are able to delegate the things that need to be done around the house, depending on which things are our strengths for each of us. This is where I think academic surgery has an advantage sometimes over private practice because we're able to try to have our busy clinical days opposite of each other so that one of us has some academic time to have some flexibility in case our nanny gets sick or something happens with the kids so that we can be available. It's really worked for us. I think the other thing that has been great has been living in small to medium-sized cities. The move to Augusta, Augusta is about the same size as Madison and that to us was really important. We want 
wanted to be somewhere where we could maintain our quality of life and you know 10 minutes to school if we need to pop over midday to get to something not having long commutes trying to be home for dinner as a family all of those things that are really important that you can't necessarily do in a big city your career has been very nomadic. I was wondering if you could speak to the unique challenges of that kind of nomadic essence of academic medicine and bridging those conversations, especially when a family is involved. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And I think it's a little bit unique to America, too. I've had the good fortune of being involved in some international groups and really gotten to know some of the surgeons over in the UK and in Australia and New Zealand. And most of them do that, right? They go somewhere and train and stay on and become the professor. And it's very much sort of one place. I think that it's actually really advantageous to move around the way that we do here just because it's so easy to get ingrained in the way you know the Emory way of doing something right and when you go to another institution you see that there are multiple ways that you can do things and I think it helps us to kind of keep fresh eyes and to keep evolving in the ways that we take care of patients but it takes a lot of forethought for us we have three children they're 14 12 and uh, 7 so that translates to eighth grade sixth grade and second grade we were even either moving this year or we weren't moving for probably eight more years because I wasn't going to move my kids actually ten more years I wasn't going to move my kids when they were in high school Mm -hmm. that was sort of something that we had committed to them but I think that it really builds resilience in kids too to be able to you know leave the life that they know and go go somewhere new and meet new people and develop new friends and new networks and I really think that it's a good thing I don't know that I'd recommend moving every three to five years, but, you know, I seem to be moving every 10 to 15 years, and that seems to be pretty doable. Yeah. So I I have to say, one of the things that I think is really important when you make these moves is to take some time off. So I took a month off. My husband's taking two and a half months off. Okay. Mostly to help get our kids settled, but also, you know, get the house set up, everything else you need to do. But I will say that getting there and getting them settled and seeing their social networks starting to develop and them joining their sports teams and starting to set down roots is making it much easier and less stressful for me as I start to think about starting my job May 1st to know that they're okay. One of the things we wanted to chat with you a bit about is we both actually watched your AAS presidential address. We wanted to touch base on some of those topics that you brought up in this presidential address, Mm -hmm. in particular gender equity, and you spoke a lot about these gender schemes, or schemas, I guess. What led you to kind of pick that topic for your presidential address, and how do you feel like it's been received? Yeah, great question. I like to credit John L. Verde. He's a professor at the University of Chicago with really inspiring me to give this talk. So he called me a number of years ago and asked me to come and talk at the Chicago Surgical Society, and he gave me a topic. He said, I really wanted somebody to talk about the next generation surgeon. Who is she and where is she taking us? And he was like, you were the person that came to my mind, which, you know, I was so flattered that that he thought would be for that. I gave that talk and I talked about a bunch of different issues, but I talked a little bit about issues around gender equity. And as I started researching it, I was just blown away with the data. And I was like, dear Lord, like if I don't know this as a woman in surgery, 
I'm sure 99.9% .9 of surgeons out there don't know this data. I sort of honed my topic so that it was really focused on that gender equity. And my goal in giving the talk was to really try to have it be evidence-based, to try to ground it in data and to use some anecdotes to bring that personal touch and help people to see the impact that it can have on an individual, but really to have evidence that makes it hard to refute the fact that there really is a problem. I think it's had a tremendous impact, more impact than I certainly ever would have imagined it having. I've been really fortunate to be involved in a number of different initiatives as a result of it. I've been invited to lecture all over the country and internationally on the issue and really feel like I've been able to play a small part in helping to advance this really, really important issue. Yeah, it definitely is very important. And I feel like as I was listening to it, there were so many scenarios you brought up, like for instance, being a senior resident in a surgery program, experiencing some of these things where like you were saying, you have to talk nicely and chit chat for a while first before you ask for your favor or having to experience that based on being a female in surgery. So I was wondering what advice you would have for chief residents or senior residents in a residency or junior faculty even for how to navigate that. I think it's really important that we all start to be cognizant of these issues. I think it's really hard for people that are in a chief resident position to be the agent of change. I think that the responsibility for that really falls more with the leadership and all of us, right? The majority, I mean, the people that are in more vulnerable groups, like all of us are responsible for making sure that there is change. And change is only going to come by really taking a systematic look at our systems and our processes and looking for the deeply embedded biases that exist and then making change. So I have a follow-up talk that people might want to check out called Stop Fixing, mm -hmm. Stop Fixing Women, which is the name of a book by a woman named Caroline Fox. It, it takes it to the next step and it says, for so long our approach to gender equity and in many ways racial and socioeconomic inequity has been trying to fix the people in the minority, right? Let's mm -hmm. figure out how to make you more like us in the majority, and then you'll succeed. And that approach isn't going to work. It's not going to get us a diversity of ideas that's going to continue to advance our field. And it's also not going to work because the system's just not set up for that. Right. No matter how hard you work, if you have to spend twice as long getting the patient to believe that you're the surgeon and uh, they have expectations that you're going to spend much more time comforting and answering questions and all of those things that we all want to do, it's just, it's a time sink, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the data that's starting to come out about case mix, about referral patterns, about the ways even that RVUs are set and the ge gender differences in specialties and procedures that are performed. I mean, all of that stuff isn't going to be fixed by teaching women how to negotiate better, right? I thought that second talk was a perfect follow-up to the first one, and I was glad I happened to watch them in that order as well. Um, just coming off of my clinical year and also just throughout life in general, the messaging of even lean in, be more like men, be more assertive. There's just part of that messaging that just never really sat right. You know, what if I want to use exclamation points in my emails? What if I take pride in being soft? Mm -hmm. And I thought that talk that you did on Stop Fixing Women was the perfect gap in terms of also engaging men in the conversation and mm -hmm. alluding to he for she and really realizing the ways in, in which the system's detrimental to both genders and the way you talk about your husband as well, that the conversation in terms of child rearing should be equally 
mm-hmm. set between genders. So I thought that it addressed those things that I've been sitting with for a while that I haven't seen addressed yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it, it does take people stepping back for a minute and looking at what their experiences. And I think if I wasn't married to another surgeon, I don't know that I'd have the same level of insight that I do, right? Because he's he's sort of my reality check and I'll go mm-hmm. home and I'll be like, am I overthinking this? Is this really a problem, right? And for him as well, being able to see the differences in the ways that we've been treated and the differences in our experiences has really helped him to be galvanized to say, I'm a program director, I'm gonna fix this. Like, uh, this is an important initiative for me too. And so with you saying how culture kind of changes also from leadership down, what kind of things as chair of the Department of Surgery are you hoping to be able to do once you start May 1st to yeah, try that's to a, work on this? That's a great question. So one of the things that I've come to believe, and this is a little controversial, and I've tried it out with some people, and I, I, I think it makes sense, is that everybody sort of wants to have some level of diversity in their department, right? But we don't have enough people yet so that we can have a critical mass at everywhere. And so I really do think that we need to have these islands of places where we have majority of vulnerable groups or minority groups. So Wisconsin is a great example. Like I didn't realize that gender equity was as much of an issue as it was when I was in Boston. It wasn't until I got to Wisconsin where actually we have in many situations more women and more senior women than men sometimes in our department. It's really an enigma in that way. But it made me realize how isolated I did feel when I was in Boston where I didn't have quite those same levels. And so I think that there are a lot of very senior women at Wisconsin and I'm really hoping that we are all gonna start moving out to other departments where we are gonna be in positions of leadership where we can be the ones to set the tone and to lead by example. My goal is not to hide the fact that I'm a mom. My goal is to have that be out and open and transparent. My goal is to really develop a department that's very much based on collaboration, collaborative learning, collaborative approaches to quality improvement, really communication, collaboration, these things that haven't traditionally been rising to the top in terms of our values in surgery, but I think over the last 10 to 20 years, we've really started to recognize how very, very important they are. On that note, one of the topics we had been chatting about even before you got here was talking about tokenism, hiring for Mm -hmm. filling that gender role, hiring to fill that minority role. I feel like I've definitely heard people say, oh, they just gave such and such this spot because she's a woman. And it's like, well, no, she's a very qualified woman. I think, again, that's where people who are in positions of power and who are part of the majority need to call each other out when they hear those kinds of statements made, right? Because most of the time, the people that are in those positions, almost all of the time, are just as qualified as someone else, right? And I think what you're hearing is the loss of privilege. People who have traditionally been getting all of the leadership positions are starting to recognize that they're not just going to go to people that look like me anymore. And that doesn't mean that other people aren't deserving. It just means that the pool is going to be much bigger, right? And so I think we have to be incredibly thoughtful about the ways that we approach our hiring and our promotions. We need to have, again, group 
decision making, we need to have collaborative decision making, we need to have committees, we need to have explicit approaches to doing it, we need to have very well defined criteria, we need to have explicit processes so that we are not doing things sort of ad hoc, but rather we are being very thoughtful and making sure that we're getting the right people into the right positions. The other part of tokenism, I think, is this idea of the minority tax. Right. My next. <laughs> yeah. So, so the idea that we want diversity of thought in committees, and therefore our one African American woman is going to sit on every committee, or is going to mentor every student of color because we want them to have somebody who has shared experiences. And again, those aren't the activities that get you promoted. Right. And so the more time that you spend on committees and the more mentoring you do, while those may be very satisfying, that's where then we start to see these gaps in terms of how much you're billing, how much your salary is, how quickly you're being promoted, like these other things that are the traditional metrics of academic success and that lead to leadership positions. And so, again, I think it's something that we in surgery have not traditionally been explicit and thoughtful and purposeful about the ways that committee assignments happen or the ways that promotions happen or the ways that even hiring happens, right? And so I think we do need to start thinking about and looking at other disciplines to understand what the best practices are to make sure that we're not having biases. In your talk, you mentioned that in top 10 lists of pay gaps, physician slash surgeon role will always show up on that list. I'm curious about your hypotheses regarding what kind of structural or systemic makeup of this occupation makes it constantly land on lists like these. Yeah, I think it. I think it boils down to that that sort of lack of structure and that lack of the purposeful design of work, right? So what happens when you're running a department in general is we as physicians pride ourselves on our autonomy when we go into practice, and so you get hired into a job because you're the best person for the job, you're the smartest, you have great potential, but nobody really designs that job for you, right? You decide how you spend your time, how much time you're going to spend on research, how much time you're going to spend on clinical work, how much time are you going to spend on education, what committees are you going to be on, right? It's not necessarily done in a purposeful way. And when things aren't done in a purposeful, transparent way, that's when biases start to creep in. And I think that's very, very different than, let's say, the business world, for example, right? Where there is much more structure and hierarchy. You have a job. It's very clear what your job is. You have deliverables. Right? There's just these different types of benchmarks and different types of assessments than we traditionally have had in medicine because we've been so deeply ingrained in autonomy. And so I think that the question that we really need to struggle with moving forward is how do we maintain that autonomy of thought that draws the best and the brightest into medicine, but at the same time start to develop some agreed upon structure that can make sure that these biases are no longer there. Yeah. One of the other things I heard within your talk was this concept of imposter syndrome, mm. which is 100% something I have. As a rising chief resident, I remember being in awe of the chief residents, and I still have that imposter syndrome. Do you still suffer from imposter syndrome even now? 
Oh my goodness, yes, of course. I mean, I'm about to start a new job as a chairperson sure. in two weeks. Like every day, I like feel like an imposter. Again, I think that's where you really need to have a, a close network of people that you can talk to and you can reality check, right? For me, it's my husband. Just yesterday, we went for a walk and just we have like a mile loop that we did. And, you know, I said to him, I was like, do you really think I can do this? And he was like, I 1000% have no question that you can do this, right? And he's somebody that I respect professionally, that's worked with me for the last 20 years, that knows where my faults are, where my strengths are, and can say, you deserve this, you can do this, you're going to be effective, and you're going to help people. And it doesn't have to be your spouse, but we do need to have that. And we need to be able to express vulnerability. Again, I think as surgeons, right, to do our job, a lot of times it's hard to be vulnerable. And if you just continue to suppress these feelings without actually vocalizing them and having somebody talk them through with you, you're never going to deal with it. On the topic of imposter syndrome, I have been looking to Adam Grant. He's an organizational Mm -hmm. psychologist at the Wharton School of Business, and in his new book, he talks a little bit about it. It's mainly based on the research by someone by the name of Basima Tewik. She was assistant professor of work and organization at MIT, and it's busting some myths when it comes to imposter syndrome that so long as it's not, you know, maladaptive, it actually can challenge someone to have improved performance because it challenges you to look at your work in a new way, understanding how you can improve. In your presidential address, you spoke about how women get into higher journals, are more likely to turn abstract into manuscript. I wonder if that imposter syndrome has kind of led us to be perhaps the superior surgeon. Yeah, I mean, you hear women talk about it a lot of times, and you also hear racial and ethnic minorities talk about it a lot of times, right? You have to be twice as good as the white man sitting next to you in order to be able to get where you want to go. And so there definitely, I think, is a component of sort of that always striving, always feeling like you have something to prove that can help. I think perhaps we need a new term for it that's sort of less judgmental than imposter syndrome. And again, I think people that don't question whether or not they should be in their position are probably more likely to not succeed, right? Because they have a blind spot. Like, they're Mm -hmm. not questioning. They're not constantly asking, how can I be better? They're not constantly asking, am I the right person to be in this job, right? Again, when when I'm no longer being effective and I'm no longer the best chair, like, I am going to step down. Like, my ego is not going to stand in the Mm -hmm. way of me stepping down when it's time. And I think sometimes when you don't have that capacity for self-assessment, self-inquiry, self-awareness, sometimes you you do have that inability to see where your gaps might be. Mm -hmm. And I know you've also related pioneer this idea of surgical coaching Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could speak to that and like where that idea came from and how you kind of engineered that into something that can be applied and applicable yeah sure so when I was doing my lab time I got hooked up with some systems engineers from MIT that wanted to come into the operating room and it was like like this whole world opened up to me of performance and systems and teams and the concept of human factors engineering and systems engineering and all these things that we didn't think about in surgery. And I started doing field observation work where we would go in and I would go in paired with the systems engineer and we would look at what was happening with the system and with the team. 
and really try to optimize performance. And fast forward to when I finished training and I started my fellowship and I was working with Atul Gawande as my mentor at the time, and we were doing some video recording, again, looking at system and team performance, and we had some really cool findings around the count and the way that nurses interact with surgeons and all sorts of stuff. But we sort of would sit around in our team meetings and we'd be like, we're missing the surgeon. Like, what about surgical performance? And then we got to the point where people became more comfortable with video recording and so we had these videos and so we decided to actually see if we could use the videos as a basis for coaching. And so started thinking about what happens in other disciplines. And at that point, then I I left Boston and moved to Wisconsin. And so the first year or so I was in Wisconsin, I spent my time actually hanging out with the Badgers. So I followed Brett Bielema, who's the football coach, and Bo Ryan, who was the basketball coach around. And I went to the School of Music and I interviewed people who coached musicians. And I went to the School of Education and interviewed people who coached teachers. And really sort of did this comparative case study and did a ton of literature review trying to understand what are the sort of commonalities about coaching across all of these different disciplines and then how can we bring that into surgery. And so, you know, I spent probably the last 12 years, I guess, working in this area. I have a federally funded research program. We've had two R01s to study the concept of surgical coaching and its effectiveness on improving surgeon outcomes. And then I started a nonprofit organization, the Academy for Surgical Coaching, to try to really move this concept from research into practice. I think we've done amazing things in terms of our ability to measure quality and measure patient outcomes. I think we have a long, long way to go, but at least we're kind of there and we recognize it's important. But I think we haven't quite made that jump to say, okay, now that I know my patient outcomes, what do I do with that information? And I think that's where surgical coaching and other ways that we can use video and that we can use collaborative learning and that we can really change the ways that we think about how we take that information, look at our practice, make intentional changes to what we do, and then study the impact. It's really about becoming a learning healthcare system and becoming somebody who's just in this constant state of inquiry and this constant pursuit of improvement. you did a lot of health services and outcomes research before it was even a thing and so as someone that also aspires to be a health service and outcome researcher is this something that kind of started your journey towards looking at quality improvement or outcomes or how did that genesis happen yeah so when i started my research time it was interesting because there weren't a whole lot of people going and getting their mphs back then but at harvard there were a bunch of medicine people doing it And so I saw all of these people on the medical side who were having these really successful academic careers based on public health and health services research. And so I went to my chair and my program director at the time and was like, I want to go do an MPH. They're like, there's not a career path there. They're like, the only person who's done it is a tool. And like, you you know, you're not going to go work for Bill Clinton. It's just not going to happen, right? And so, you know, to their credit, they were like, but go for it. Over time, they really became some of my biggest advocates very, very quickly in recognizing how much of an impact it could have. I started out doing very traditional health services research, looking at socioeconomic disparities. I did a lot of work in quality measurement in cancer as a surgical oncologist. You know, there's a lot of data out there, and I really had a very kind of traditional health services research component to what I did. But then I was also doing this video and this performance stuff that was kind of in the systems engineering world. And I would say it's probably been over the last four to five years that I've started trying to really merge those together and think about how do we use data 
and performance improvement in a really sort of synergistic way. It's very, very cool. And then I know you've started the Surgical Outcomes Club, mm-hmm. which I've attended now two meetings of, and it's such a great forum to discuss all these things. Is this an idea you've always had? How, how did this kind of come to be? Yeah, and I have to give Mike Zinner credit for that. Like, he was an amazing chair and really empowered me in many ways. So there are these surgical biology clubs that are groups of people who get together around the college and talk about science and have dinner and really are, are sort of joined together by their interest in science. And so so it was really Dr. Zinner who came to me and was like, this health services research thing is really going to be important. How can we help to make sure that it happens? And there was a small group of people that were meeting for dinner, John Clark and John Berkmeyer, and some of really the forefathers of health services research and surgery had this dinner every year, but it didn't really go beyond that. And so when I was a fellow, Mike Zinner was like, all right, I'm going to foot the bill and we're going to have this meeting. Oh, wow. And so I was empowered to be able to put together the first meeting, to write the bylaws, to get together the whole thing. And it was really an incredible, incredible opportunity. And it's been so rewarding to see what's happened since that time. We now have about 200, 250 people in our meetings. We have some fellowships for people to help get mentorship to people who don't have it at their home institutions and have had some really tremendous speakers from outside of surgery even come in and give our keynotes and so forth. It's been really, really rewarding. Yeah, it's been incredible. I mean, did you ever imagine when you first started this that it was going to snowball? into such a large thing? I had hoped, to be perfectly honest with you, I thought by now there would be more people doing health services research. Justin Dimmick and I used to talk about it a lot. We're like, by the time we're chairs, we're going to have our pick of people. There's going to be so many people getting master's degrees and doing and really getting trained in this. And while there is certainly more than there used to be, it still isn't sort of the tsunami of people that I thought it would be. Really? Um, Yeah. And why do you think that might be? I think it's because right now it's really hard to be an academic surgeon. I think with what's happening in healthcare and the financial pressures on people, it's really hard to get the protected time and the resources that it takes to launch a federally funded research career. I think it used to, you know, 10 years ago, it was way easier. I think one of the things too that I noticed like as a fellow at ACS was the currency, and you kind of mentioned this before, but the currency of promotions is papers and that kind of stuff. And when you spend a lot of time on quality improvement and implementation, that's you don't necessarily generate the currency of getting these grants necessarily or writing these papers. Um, and you spend a lot more hours trying to get some sort of quality initiative off the ground or going and actually doing it with your hospital, teaching the nurses, that kind of thing. But somehow it's kind of not recognized in the same way. Did you, did you feel that way at all? Or is there... So- that's a good point. I think there's two I think there's two issues. I think that's one of them. I think that there's sort of this grayness between operations and quality improvement and health services research. And you know, you can be somewhere on that spectrum and I think we haven't quite figured out how it all fits together. I think IRBs are still making us have oversight of things that really have no need for IRBs, but if you want to publish what you do, you need an IRB and it's yeah. like we just haven't quite figured out the regulatory piece of it and we haven't really again integrated and this is one of my visions for my department is I really want to try to integrate the way that we study what we do and the way that we do what we do so that it's not like these two completely different silos. We've always thought of it as there being this hard line in between but there's really not right. 
the other piece of it is is that I think that there still is a little bit of a misperception about what health services research is. I think many people think it's cheaper, it's easier, you can do it better with less of everything than it takes to run a basic science lab and it's really not. Mm-hmm. Early on, yes, you could get your hands on a database and you could answer a million clinical questions with that database and you could get papers published and you just can't do that anymore. I mean, it's really hard to get papers published using administrative data right now unless you're looking at a really heavily influential policy issue. And so I think that misperception about what it is and what it takes to do it is also still somewhat of a problem. And last question. It seems like a big theme in your career is questioning how things are done, questioning the status quo. And it seems like a lot of the initiatives that you've brought about have required a lot of countering inertia. Mm. I was wondering where that energy comes from. Is that a characteristic of yours that you've always had? Or is it more foresight in how things can be provided, like changes are made into the future? Does that motivate you? So I'm just kind of curious into understanding that as, as a broader theme in yeah. your career. So I would say I think my motivation is based in my own experiences and knowing that things should be different and things could be different. I would say that my strength professionally has always been being a little bit visionary, being able to see how things fit together in a way that many people can't. You know, I have a terrible memory, <laughs> like my anatomy's not that great. I have all of these re- things that I'm not very good at, but I usually can figure things out and I can see ways that pieces fit together to make something new. That's my strength. What kind of music do you listen to in the operating room? <laughs> <laughs> I listen to Guardians of the Galaxy Radio. Really? I actually don't like music, which is, again, anybody who knows my husband knows that he is a phenomenal bass player, pianist, his entire life revolves around music. He's got an incredibly extensive, diverse playset, and I only listen to NPR and books on tape. (laughs) Really am not into music. So the first thing I do is try to get somebody else in the OR to pick the music, and then if I fail with that, I usually go with Guardians of the Galaxy because everybody can kind of listen to it. That's awesome. Thank you so, so much for taking sure, your time to my talk pleasure. to us. This has been such a great experience. I think it's great that you guys are doing this. I think we need to do more of it. And I think, you know, we've come a long way and we still have a lot of work to do. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support, and we hope to hear from you soon.